Welcome to the Image Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Mesman. In every episode, we're exploring the intersection of art and faith. We'll talk to poets and writers, filmmakers, musicians, and visual artists who grapple with the mystery at the heart of religious experience. When my kids were little, I led the three to six-year-olds at our church in the Catechesis of the Good Shepherd, which teaches not with coloring sheets and crafting, but as Jesus taught, in parables. It's a program that believes in the power of story. I spent two years praying with the parables and breaking them down to simple terms a toddler could literally grasp. Seeds, yeast, wine, oil. We experienced light by lighting candles and dark by extinguishing them with a silver snuffer. When I finished, I was convinced that this kind of theological education should be required not just for children, but for all adults. We are best catechized by our senses. We learn from parables and fairy tales, stories with the same homespun elements and infinite arrangements that we come to know by heart. It's why I so often say that it is art and story that drew me back to the practice of faith, not theology. Liturgies work effectively and aesthetically, writes Image's new editor-in-chief, James K.A. Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love. They grab hold of our guts through the power of image, story, and metaphor. That's why the most powerful liturgies are attuned to our embodiment. They speak to our senses. They get under our skin. Liturgy, he writes, bends the needle of our hearts. And when liturgies are disordered, his term, our hearts bend the wrong way. Smith, who's also a philosophy professor at Calvin College, argues that traditional Christian worship reorients our hearts toward eternity, while so much contemporary worship only apes pop culture, with churches designed to feel like secular spaces, arenas, malls, and coffee shops. But such spaces do nothing to move our hearts toward eternity. They simply reinforce the habits we've trained in frequenting those spaces, habits of consumption. They encourage us to worship as we shop, based on novelty, innovation, self-expression, with the ultimate goal of a satisfying or affirming experience. That's not worship at all, James Smith says. It's recreation. Smith's work has always moved me, not just as a person of faith, but as a writer and an artist, making me more aware of how art bends my internal compass one way or another. Now, Jamie Smith is editor-in-chief of Image, and we're working together to draw attention to the intersection of faith and the arts. I talked to him for the podcast about the paths that led each of us to Image and why the arts are the best space to grapple with the paradoxes of faith. Jamie, welcome to the Image podcast. Hey, I'm so excited to be here with you. I always start by asking a guest what their faith background is and how that informed their perception of art or how the two relate to each other. Could you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I often feel like a little bit of a theological mutt, which, which is just a mean way of saying I've had a lot of different spiritual sort of episodes. <laughs> so I'm, I'm a Protestant, but my formation, uh, both as a Christian and a scholar, has been in a kind of 
variety of streams, if you will. So uh, on the one hand, I'm, I'm uh, in the Dutch Reformed tradition. And in that Reformed tradition, this, this was kind of the mind-blowing part for me coming out of what was conservative evangelicalism. What I learned from the Reformed tradition was this affirmation of the goodness of creation, the sort of this deep affirmation that God makes stuff and makes matter and says it's very good. And with that comes then this blessing and this commissioning of humanity to take that stuff and make more stuff. And God says that that's very good. So the work of culture making and that that sort of framework um, just was so eye-opening for me because it's interesting when I, I wasn't raised in a Christian home and when I became a Christian, if it was very much in the, now you leave the world behind and go be a missionary kind of dynamic. So sadly I kind of put aside a lot of what had been kind of aesthetic sensibilities and hungers. I'd spent my whole life wanting to be an architect. And it's so sad to me to think that because I became a Christian, I thought, oh, God doesn't want anybody to be architects. Mm. And so that that's, um, I'm working this out in therapy, but the, <laughs> the reformed oh, yeah. tradition helped me to sort of say, no, 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 God cares about all of those good creaturely things. So that that's the one stream. I would say the other part of my pilgrimage that's really kind of primed my investment in the arts has been my formation in Catholic spaces. So I did my PhD at Villanova University, which is an Augustinian Catholic university. And that was really kind of the gateway into sacramentality, you might say. Like it was reform people think about a lot of things all the time. And once I got into these Catholic spaces, I was like, oh, we're going to do things and stuff material things are means of grace right so there was this image-based spirituality there was this kinesthetic spirituality that i i kind of caught uh in those catholic streams and then my first job was at loyola marymount los angeles which was in jesuit tradition and same thing just just a mode of affirming the visual the sensual even as Mm -hmm. integral to being human Mm -hmm. uh a role for the imagination and so i think those streams have all kind of primed my investment in the arts and I, I would add one more which is actually i had this sojourn in the pentecostal and charismatic tradition don't tell anybody but, and but what's so interesting in the pentecostal tradition uh pentecostal spirituality is surrealist in the most interesting way do you know what I mean like it's the prophetic dynamic is painting pictures of a world that are strange, but it's actually longing for a world that could be otherwise. And I've always thought that there's actually a deep aesthetic intuition in those Pentecostal traditions. I think it overlaps actually with with Black church traditions in that regard, a kind of prophetic way of trying to embody something. And so all of those things get sort of embroiled and rolled up into my sort of investment. And that's why I'm I'm so excited to be part of Image now and try to work this all out and be alongside people who are doing this kind of making, right? It's very similar for me because I was raised Catholic. I grew up right outside of New Orleans. It's a very Catholic culture. Everyone's yeah. Catholic. Um, it's the default setting. Um, uh, we always say, even if you're Baptist, you're Catholic in Louisiana. So, um, <laughs> But my 
my mom died when I was 14 and my dad left the church and he remarried someone he met from an assembly of God. So we moved into a very fundamentalist, evangelical, anti-intellectual, um, so a complete polar opposite of what I had been raised in and not just in church, but in life. I grew up in a culture that embraced the sensual, the imaginative. I grew up in Mardi Gras land. So this interplay of all sorts of myth and tradition and cultural liturgies that were all of a sudden very wrong, not just absent, but condemned and sinful. And even at that age, you know, I was always already a very moody teenager listening to the Smiths in my bedroom and wearing a lot of black, but <laughs> I just knew that that felt so wrong to me. That felt like cutting off so many of the only avenues that I had to any sort of transcendent experience and going into a space where I was expected to have transcendent experiences without any of that. Um, I was just supposed to sort of gin it up on my own yeah. faith and my own energy. And it felt so false. No, when there was no imagery, no beauty, no song, no, nothing to, nothing to help me get into that space. So I, I, I was still deeply Christian. I, I never lost my faith, but I felt like I can't be, I can't be a religious person. I can't go to church. So I just sort of wandered around aimlessly for a while. But being, I think, a deep religion nerd at heart, I was always reading and thinking and going to different churches, but nothing really felt true to me until I went back to the Catholic Mass. Um, so, and, and re-encountering all of that pageantry, and I, I immediately felt at home, not just in terms of my faith, but just it, my personality. I just felt like I could be who I am there, which as I grew and came to know more of what Catholicism is like outside of the culture I grew up in, that was a lot less true. Mm. Um, mm. So that, that was the difference though of growing up in a very Catholic culture um, where it kind of permeates everyday life and, and then moving to a place where Catholicism was utterly separate from anything else in my secular world. And that presented a whole new mm. <laughs> basket of problems for me to deal with. But one of the things that I've read, I don't remember if you said it in an interview or, um, Probably I've read America Magazine did this wonderful profile of mm. you that I'm gonna, I want to ask you some questions about, but where you said that when you became Christian, these like intellectual quests began, that you became like intellectually voracious. And that was so true for me in coming back to the church. I wanted to understand why those things were true, why they felt true. And I wanted to understand why my dad's faith tradition could not accept the truth that was inherent in those things. So I really just started reading everything I could get my hands on. And I think I got a little confused too, because I began to think, well, I'm a writer, I'm an artist. Mm -hmm. And if I'm interested in these things, then this is what I have to write about. And so I became a Catholic writer. Yeah. 
which went well for me in some regards and not so much in others, because then you find out that not everyone is as open to those ideas as you might have thought they were to begin with. So mm. um, just mm. some things that I really identified in your career. And, and is, is part of that, did you also discover then in a way there are multiple Catholic cultures? Yes. And in a way that, that had baptized your imagination as a child was not necessarily the culture that you were being read in necessarily. No, exactly. Right. And the fact that really what I was being baptized in was probably not Catholicism. It was cultural mm. Catholicism. It was an Orthodox Catholicism. Mm. And I always thought of myself as a very Orthodox Catholic who practiced popular piety and, um, you know, prayed the rosary and made St. Joseph's altars and followed the liturgical year. But when I came back into the church, it seemed so much more focused on morality and rule following. And the church that I had grown up in was very much the church of the imagination. And so I was like, oh, I may, I, we, you know, a certain kind of Catholic really sneers at people who call themselves cultural Catholics. But I think I've accepted that that's really and truly what I am. So when I read You Are What You Love and engaged with the work that you're doing about counter liturgies and secular liturgies and paying attention to how those things shape us that that made so much sense to me because i feel like that is exactly what happened growing up in that kind of culture and what's lost when we lose that kind of in deeply ingrained christian culture because that was a much more lasting catechism for me than anything i learned in nine years of catholic school it's it's maybe somewhat encouraging that it's some of what you're identifying as frustrations in Catholic tradition are frustrations I've had in Protestant traditions. So maybe these, what would have been the old predictable boundaries between the two, turn out to be less significant right. than almost like sub-traditional boundaries within them. Because mm -hmm. I, you know, uh, um, on on the one hand, Protestantism is giving us Mer the novels of Marilyn Robinson, right? Um, and and there's forms of Catholicism that are utterly didactic and allergic to, you think of, of controversies at Steubenville and things like that. So there's interesting way in which the maps being redrawn of people who are invested in the life of the imagination and the arts. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I, I mean, I love it that we're having this conversation and that image in many ways means to be the tent, the big yes. tent that's pulling all of those people together where what would have been other more predictable boundaries kind of don't matter. Exactly. And I think that what I realized over time is I thought these things were all housed within the Catholic tradition. And for a while I was a really triumphalist Catholic, you know, like this is where it all is. This is the truth. But I found the more I went, I got an MFA at a secular graduate school. I went to the university of Pittsburgh. I've always been in artist communities. I've always lived and worked in artist colonies and I've always been the only Christian. So I really found that it was not the church where I was finding those things necessarily. It was the intersection of the church with art and the, and where artists were talking about matters of mystery and faith. That's where I was really inspired. That's where I was feeling like, this is the truth. This is where I can grow. This is where I can believe. This is where I can worship. And there aren't that many spaces where that happens. And so it's such an exciting moment when you meet another person or another thinker, or another writer, or another artist who's engaging those questions from a faith tradition. And that opened up my 
worldview a lot to realize that it isn't located in this one space. And in fact, much of the Catholic Church is every bit as militantly against and hostile towards the life of the artist um, and that kind of curiosity and creativity as the church that my dad had changed into yeah. or had taken me into as a kid. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, that's so interesting. We're all we're all looking for the threads to pull and extend and weave with within our traditions to make something beautiful. Yeah. Let's talk about, you've also mentioned, let me think about, I don't know if this was my quote or yours because I put it in my notes, but taking art out of the ivory tower. I think mm. you might've been talking about theology, taking those things out of the ivory tower, being a popularizer, um, writing mm. popular books about these mm-hmm. things. And I feel like that's definitely been important to me in my writing career. And I, what I did when I started Sick Pilgrim, which was the blog that I started, was I wanted to attract those people who were drawn to mystery and drawn to faith and also drawn to the arts, but maybe weren't artists themselves, maybe weren't educated in theology or the arts, and help them to process why those things went together and how that was a legitimate spiritual path and spiritual concern. So I just wanted to talk to you a little bit about that and why you think that's important and how image can how we can work together through and let's keep doing that. Yeah, I'm so glad we share the sensibility because it's actually a big passion I have for image. Now, I think image can do a lot of things well at the same time, right? So I, I think it's really crucial. Like you were just saying, I actually think it's really crucial that in a way image has in mind reaching people who are in quote unquote mainstream artistic culture so that we're not just doing parochial things. But right. at the same time, I absolutely want us to be the gateway and the portal for people who are not artists or writers themselves, Mm -hmm. but I I want them to realize that they are more fully human to the extent that they cultivate their imagination. Mm -hmm. And especially for religious pilgrims, uh, image should be the artifact that helps them do that. You know, there's, there's that great line from Irenaeus, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's a great frame for thinking about why do we want everyone to experience the arts is because it's another way of being fully alive. You know, it's, otherwise there, there are poor parts of us, our imagination lies dormant and it's shriveled and it's written over by pragmatism and consumption and all these kinds of things. And we're less human. We're, we're not, we're not what God made us to be. We're not the image bearers we were made to be. And so I really hope that we're going to find uh, people to journey with us in image who are like, ah, oh, I didn't even know they're, they're like the stringed instrument and they didn't even know that they had this string to play. And it's like, Oh man, yeah. this is now I can play chords now that I didn't know how to play before. Right. Um, there's, there's always risk to that. I, I, I'd be intrigued to hear from you, Jessica about, did you, did it feel risky to embrace writing for the non-experts? Do, do you know what I mean? Like in, in the academy where I sit to become quote unquote a popularizer is like 
Right. <laughs> it's like, it's like, that's the worst thing. Death, right. But I, I just, I just, I've embraced, I, I've decided it's a different kind of. Right. Um, right. It's a different kind. Is that same for a writer? The risk was not, uh, I mean, I risked alienating myself from the literary world by writing specifically about religion from a point of view of faith and writing for the faithful. Yes. Um, Did that happen? Did that risk come true? I actually think it worked in reverse in that I quickly found that by writing in the way that I write about religion for the faithful, I alienated myself from Catholic Mm -hmm. publications. Mm -hmm. I do think people questioned on the literary side coming from, like I said, a secular MFA program. I used to work at the journal Creative Nonfiction, a secular literary journal. Mm -hmm. Um, People wondered what I was doing when I left that and went and became a freelancer writing for almost all Catholic publications. I wrote devotional books, but I was very excited by that challenge. I felt like we used to have a tradition of Catholic writing by Catholic people, not just Flannery O'Connor, not just fiction, nonfiction devotional writing that was of literary quality. Um, And I'm thinking of people who have inspired me, like Carol Houselander, who's one of my favorite writers. Um, A lot of the people published by Sheedon Ward in the, the heyday of Catholic writing in the 50s and 60s. I, those were my models. And I took it as a challenge. Like, can I write explicitly devotional work that is beautiful and artistic? And that was very difficult to get. I'm sure. I'm sure. Because where do you take that kind of work? Which was another reason we started Sick Pilgrim. And I found that we could reach the unchurched. We could reach the artist. We could reach those who'd been like typically kind of scared of that material. Um, reaching the believer was much harder. Whereas where I thought when I went in, I would be talking to those people who had, were already believers, but were so hungry for, for an artistic experience. And what I found was people who were open to artistic experience, but were really hungry for belief and really Mm. hungry for mystery and really hungry Mm. for um, art that took those kinds of human experiences seriously. So it it kind of all got turned on its head. And for a while it was confusing because, and then we didn't know what we were. Are we Catholic? And then the writers who started writing for us were like, we were just saying they weren't necessarily Catholic. They were people, we use the term Catholic attracted. They were drawn to Catholicism, (laughs) but also repelled by it. And that was just a very interesting experience for us in that if you went to Sick Pilgrim and said, we're a collection of Catholic writers and we had to ask them to change it because at Patheos where we were hosted, because we aren't, we're almost mm-hmm. none of us are Catholic. Mm-hmm. So what a strange segment of the population to attract people who are interested in Catholicism, but um, will never be Catholic. And I, so that was a really narrow audience, but it also felt important. And when we would go to conferences and we, and I would give talks, those again were the people who would come and that were most excited. It was never Catholics. And so it's become more and more difficult as I've gone on to write, you know, I've gotten away from writing devotional books. I kind of feel like I I did that, you know, and I'm intellectually, you talk about having intellectual ADD and I have the same thing. (laughs) I I like to take on challenges and get in really invested in conversations. And then I kind of move on. Um, I'm getting much more interested in writing fiction and Mm. I, I don't, I, 
I've written a couple of pieces for U.S. Catholic where I still have a column. Um, they're very open to the things that I'm doing, but I pretty much alienated every other Catholic place that I was writing for because I'm not willing to stay within the lines anymore. Um, and I think because my perspective was so broadened by the work that I did in Sick Pilgrim, it really broke me out of thinking in really rigid ways about what Catholicism is or what it should be. And just coming to a lot of realizations about my myself and my own faith and how, um, like we talked about earlier, about how much I've been influenced by cultural and folk religion, yeah. probably more than the magisterium. <laughs> <laughs> In that sense, it, I think it's a very exciting time to be working in that kind of interstitial space mm-hmm. that, that I hope image occupies as well, because there are these, you can call them sort of cracks in the secular, right? Like, I, I just think there are so many openings of hunger for the transcendence. And I think you're a Catholic writer. Your, your intuitions and imaginations are, you know, that's the that you're drawing on, what you have a capacity to translate so that that piques the interest of the person who's not necessarily committed. I think that's a very exciting space to work in. It's one of the reasons why I, I think Image is also hoping to basically be a gallery that hosts artistic encounters mm-hmm. um, with those of faith, with those of no faith, but are mm-hmm. sort of curious of the Abrahamic faiths, right? Mm-hmm. That there's conversations to be had between Judaism and Islam and Christian creators. And um, I, in that sense, I'm really energized about opportunities going forward. And, and I think your, your experience attests to that. You had this beautiful quote in one of your, I think it was in one of your editorials from Comment, where you were the editor, mm-hmm. correct, before yes. Image. Mm-hmm. You said, if the believer is haunted by an echoing emptiness, the unbeliever can be equally haunted by a hounding transcendence. Mm. I feel like the conversation between those two people, those two types of readers or art patrons or, you know, that's where the excitement happens like for me. And that's, that's a space that isn't filled anywhere that I can think of except image Um, and could be more so. And I hope that we pursue that kind of conversation and I, I think it's it's the space that can only be grappled with artistically. Mm-hmm. That is like th- there's not there's not really a didactic way of grappling with that. You need the supple, expansive stretching of imagination to be able to do that. I, I, I've been thinking a lot. The the Roman poet Terence has this line: "Nothing human is alien to me," and. I just find that so suggestive of late. Like the Mm. the arts are part of what help us to imagine solidarity with one another. That seems like a very timely need, but it's precisely the the space of the arts. I think that helps to bring those two people together in the same room, the same gallery, so to speak, and hopefully understand one another, but also find a lot of grace and forgiveness for one another too. Yeah, that's beautiful.
please visit the Image website at www.imagejournal.org. There, you can learn more about each episode of the podcast and find links to books and other resources discussed. You can also subscribe to the quarterly print journal and access the Image archives, more than 30 years worth. To learn more about how you can support the creation of this podcast and the artists we feature, visit patreon.com slash image podcast. If you become a patron, you'll receive some exclusive image merchandise, access to exclusive content, and more. Your pledge will help us continue the conversation about art, faith, and mystery. Mm-hmm.